0: Happy spring break. Oh, what's that? You have to go into work over spring break? Oh, that sucks. Well, I mean, at least you have summer to look forward to. What? Normal adults just work in July? That's unfathomable to me. Well, while teachers around the country are basking in their one week between the school hellscapes that are February and April, just comfort yourself with the knowledge that you don't get paid to watch kids roll their eyes as you try to make them better humans. And your money. I hear money is nice. Every year, I set a goal for myself over spring break, and it typically involves Ken Burns. One year, I remember all my friends going out to enjoy South by Southwest while I watched the entire Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War. But really, who had the better spring break? I mean, if you're counting sincere narrations of recolorized images of dead bodies and dramatic readings of 19th century letters, then (laughs) I think we know who had the better spring break. Anyway, this spring break, I had a revelation— All of the big Oscar movies from the last few months are now out on streaming, and I realized that basically every single movie this year had a pretty interesting connection to history. Six out of the eight are essentially true stories, if you don't count Black Panther as a true story, which I really think we all should. And I figured that some other people out there are probably like me. You haven't gotten around to seeing most of the Oscar-nominated movies, and now that they're popping up on Amazon Prime and Netflix, you'll be checking them out. So... I took one for the team, and I sat down and watched this year's Best Picture nominations. You're welcome. Today, for your listening pleasure, I'm going to rank the eight Best Picture nominees from worst to best in an episode I'm calling The 2019 Oscar Movies, or The Vice-Favorite Green Panther Klansman from Bohemian Roma is Born. That took me a while to figure out. And my only consideration for my rankings is what I'm calling historical value. What is historical value, you ask? Well, it's something I made up so that I can make this list arbitrarily without pissing off film buffs out there. But in general, I ask myself one question. Did I learn something new about history from watching this movie? This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. start, let me make a spoiler announcement. I mean, I'm not going to go through each movie's entire plot, but there pretty definitely will be a few spoilers. Before I start talking about each movie, I will tell you what minute mark you can skip to if you don't want to hear about that movie yet. So feel free to skip and then come back after you've seen it. But this first one doesn't need a spoiler warning because we're going to be talking about it for like 30 seconds. Number eight, A Star is Born. Okay, we can just get this one out of the way, right? Let me be clear, I loved this movie, and Lady Gaga was great as a young woman becoming an international pop star. You know, it was almost like she herself had been a young woman becoming an international pop star. It was an amazing transformation. But this was really the only movie on the list that had essentially zero historical value, unless you count value to film history, which on this podcast I don't. Sure, it was the fourth remake of this movie, and that's cool? Or does it lack imagination? I don't know. All I know is that they originally approached Christian Bale, Will Smith, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Tom Cruise, all to co-star, and all of those would have been amazing train wrecks to watch. Anyway, let's move on. Number seven. Green Book. All right, spoiler warning. If you don't want to hear about Green Book yet, skip to 10 minutes and 8 seconds. This one's low ranking might surprise you, considering it's one of the movies on the list billed as a completely true story, but oh my god, y'all. I hated Green Book. I hated it so much. Look, if you liked that movie, that is totally fine. It was nice. A white guy taught a black guy how to be black, and then they solved racism forever. But this is what I like to call a Disney-fied history movie. In order to create a movie that will be pleasing to audiences and make them not want to sob as they leave the theater, you have to clean up history a bit. As we've hopefully learned from this podcast, history is like 5% inspiring moments and 95% humans being terrible to each other. Is it bad to make a movie that flips those numbers around? No, but it's bad to do that and call it historically accurate. Remember that my one question is, did I learn something new about history from the movie? I mean, if this movie had come out 20 years ago, then a lot of people would have probably said, yes, it's a fine movie that shows a PG-13 version of severe racism, but we don't need any more of these movies. We could just watch Remember the Titans or Hidden Figures or The Help or, you know, you get the idea. So when I was taking notes watching each of these movies, I had two categories, good and problematic. And I quickly changed the word problematic to just, ugh, in my Google Doc. But let's start with the good. Okay, well, Dr. Shirley was friends with Bobby Kennedy, and he called him when they were thrown in jail, and that is pretty badass. Imagine using the attorney general slash brother of the president as your get-out-of-jail-free card. And I did love the scene where Tony meets Dr. Shirley for the first time. Mahershala Ali is dressed in African-style robes, sitting on a throne, surrounded by elephant tusks and African art. It's a pretty awesome statement on his pride in his African heritage that gets totally ruined by the rest of the movie, turning him into a character who is completely disconnected from the black community. But I mean, that one scene was cool, I guess. All right, now for the ugh. Well, for one, the movie is called Green Book. And yet, there's almost nothing about the, well, the Green Book. The Negro Motorist Green Book was the most popular travel book for African Americans for decades, helping them avoid awkward situations as they traveled through the Jim Crow South. And by awkward, I mean life-threatening. This book was vitally important to the lives of Black people, and it's been called a seminal item in Black history. The fact that the only characters who talk about or physically handle the Green Book are white Tony and his white wife is insane. At one point, he throws it in the backseat next to Dr. Shirley, who just looks at it and turns away. And that is all we ever hear about the Green Book in the movie Green Book. Second, let's talk about the team that made this movie. So this movie was created by Tony's son, so it makes sense that he would be the star. That's fine, but just market it that way. Don't call it Green Book and make it look like it's going to be all about the Black experience traveling in the Jim Crow South, and then nominate Viggo Mortensen as the lead actor. The three men who wrote the movie are all white. Again, fine. But actually, no, not fine. I mean, you're not going to have any people of color writing a movie about a Black man traveling through the Jim Crow South? That makes no sense. Well, I mean... At least you have Dr. Shirley's family to consult on the movie about his life, right? Wait, they didn't consult any members of Dr. Shirley's family? Mahershala Ali didn't even realize the character he was playing still had family alive that he could talk to throughout the whole process of making this movie? What? Seriously, this is the part that kills me. The family of Dr. Shirley was outraged by this movie. One relative called it a symphony of lies. In the movie, Dr. Shirley famously says that he has one brother, but they're estranged. But when he took this trip in real life, which lasted over a year, not two months, by the way, he had three brothers, and all of them kept in contact regularly. This is one of those changes that is just outright disrespectful. There is no need to make this change. It doesn't simplify the plot. It doesn't shorten the dialogue. In fact, all it does is just make a fascinating real person even more unlikable and one-dimensional. He's now without any connections in the world except his white Italian driver. Now, Nick Vallelonga, Tony's son who made the movie, did know Dr. Shirley personally, and he approached him while he was alive about the idea of making this story into a movie. Well, that's nice. Except that Dr. Shirley, quote, "...flatly refused." He never wanted a movie made about his life because he was afraid of having no control over his own portrayal. And that sucks, because that's exactly what happened. It can't be a coincidence that Nick waited to make this movie until after Dr. Shirley's death in 2013, and that's a shame. Nick wanted so badly to tell his dad's story, and I get that. It's a really cool story. But he totally disrespected the other, and frankly, more historically significant person in the story in doing so. And now, Nick says that he didn't include details about Dr. Shirley's life because he didn't want to tell this man's story without his input, so he says he was trying to respect the wishes of Dr. Shirley. I mean, that's nice, except that his wishes were for you to never make the movie to begin with. So, all right, calm down, Emily. You're getting riled up, and we're only two movies in. So, what could he have included to make Dr. Shirley more lifelike in the movie? Well, it turns out he had a really interesting life outside playing the piano that is completely ignored. Dr. Shirley, for one, studied psychology at the University of Chicago, and he earned a grant to study the relationship between music and juvenile crime in the city. He went around playing in clubs as psychological experiments with sound to see how the audience responded. That's really fascinating. I would love to know more about that. Also, and really even more egregious, Dr. Shirley was deeply embedded in the Black community. He was active in the civil rights movement. He was friends with Duke Ellington. He attended Dr. King's March on Selma. Oh, yeah, he was friends with MLK because Dr. King was a patient of Dr. Shirley's brother, you know, the one the movie erased. So you can see why creating a movie about a Dr. Shirley who was so disconnected from his community that a white dude had to teach him about Aretha Franklin is insane. Okay, let's move on before I lose it. Number six, Vice. Don't worry, there's no spoilers in this one because here's the problem. Vice isn't available for rent yet, and I'm a teacher. I don't have the money to be buying movies left and right, so Vice is actually the only one of these eight movies that I haven't watched yet. And that sucks, because it was probably the one I was most interested in, mostly because I loved Adam McKay's other true story-slash-absurd comedy, The Big Short. So I'll have to wait on my analysis of this one, but apparently the basic facts of the movie are true, but the characterizations are pretty one-sided and slapstick, created more for entertainment than education. According to many, many reviews that I read, it seems that the movie is great if you're a liberal who already hated Dick Cheney, and it's otherwise pretty shallow. Apparently, there's no complexity to Cheney that would explain why he made the decisions he did beyond sheer megalomania. So as far as the question, did we learn anything new from watching this movie, the answer, according to reviewers, seems to be no. But I would like for you to notice that I haven't even seen this movie, and I'm still putting it ahead of Green Book. side note, as I've been trying to make the filler music for this episode, I've realized two things. One, it's really hard to find clips on GarageBand's free music that sound anything like Queen, and two, three of the first four movies have been about piano players. I wonder if Dick Cheney played the piano. Anyway, my number six choice is Bohemian Rhapsody. Spoiler alert, although, I mean, we all know how this ends, right? But if you don't want to hear anything about the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, skip to 16 minutes and 16 seconds. This movie was fun because it's about Queen, so of course it is. Rami Malek was amazing. Ugh, You should watch the side-by-side videos people have created comparing his performance to Freddie Mercury's actual performances. It's insanely accurate. But I mean, if you're going to make a movie ostensibly about Freddie Mercury and then rate it PG-13, well, let's just say you're going to have to make some edits. And that's fine. This movie wasn't supposed to be a gritty look at the AIDS epidemic. It was a celebration of Freddie Mercury's genius and Queen's contribution to music, so it was fun. There was a silly moment when Mike Myers' character, who was made up by the way, that guy didn't really exist, but he says something like, Bohemian Rhapsody will never be the song teenagers bang their heads to in the backseat of the car. Which is pretty great, coming from the guy who did it in Wayne's World. I liked it. But... What I didn't realize, and I loved, was learning about Freddie Mercury's heritage. Now, this took a lot of outside research on my part, which is why I still ranked this pretty low. Like, they don't talk much about it in the movie beyond a few mentions, but oh man, did I go down a rabbit hole on Parsis and Zoroastrianism. Let me tell you about it. So Freddie, or his birth name Farouk Bulsara's family, mentions that they are Parsis. And I was like, what are Parsis? I've never heard of those before. To Google. To Google. So this is a Zoroastrian community descended from the Persians. Ugh, y'all know how much I love the Persians. So after the Arab invasions in the 600s, during the first expansion of the new Islamic caliphates into Persia, the Parsis fled to India, where they stayed and maintained their culture for over a thousand years. Eventually, when India became a British colony, the Parsis joined in the diaspora of Indian people spreading across the British Empire in search of jobs. Many ended up in Africa. Remember that Gandhi lived in South Africa for years, and so Freddie's ancestors ended up in Zanzibar. I'll be honest, my world geography failed me on this one, and I had to shamefully Google where is Zanzibar? Well, turns out it's an island off the eastern coast of Africa, so now you know. So in the midst of African decolonization, in the wake of World War II, Zanzibar, along with nearby Tanzania, gained independence from Britain in 1963 when Freddie was 17 years old. Just one year later, a revolution led by black Africans overthrew the ruling elite that was still mostly Arab or Indian, left over from British colonialism. And Freddie's family fled during this bloody Zanzibar Revolution, which is how they ended up in England. So, here is Freddie's ancestry in a nutshell. They were Persians who were forced out of Persia during the Arab-Islamic invasions of the 600s. They ended up in India, where they lived for a thousand years until India was taken over as a British colony. Then from there, they moved to Zanzibar, another British colony, to gain work. And from there, they were forced to England. So fascinating. Throughout his life, Freddie Mercury's family still practiced Zoroastrianism, the ancient religion of the Persians. Remember from season one that this religion was part of the key to Persia's success. Cyrus the Great, my favorite, he emphasized religious tolerance, but many conquered people chose to convert to Zoroastrianism because A, it was a lot nicer and simpler religion than many of the quote pagan beliefs of the Middle East, and B, it was smart to be the same religion as your king of kings. Zoroastrianism is believed to be the first basically monotheistic religion, and all of the Abrahamic religions—Judaism, Christianity, and Islam—probably adapted a lot of their beliefs from the Zoroastrians. Its founder, Zarathustra, is the first to promote a concept of one main god, named Ahura Mazda. The car company Mazda is named after the Zoroastrian god. Why? I have no idea. Apparently, when Freddie Mercury died, he was cremated according to the wishes of his family and their faith Actually, in traditional Zoroastrianism, the body is meant to be laid out on a, quote, tower of silence to be exposed to the sun and eaten by birds of prey. Whoa. But apparently London frowns on people leaving dead bodies out to be eaten by vultures, so most Zoroastrians who live in the West adopted cremation instead. Which is nice, but I have to imagine that Freddie might have preferred the super dramatic tower of silence treatment, right? But who am I to say? <laughs> Number five, Black Panther. I'm not going to go into too much detail on this one, but if you want, skip ahead to... 17 minutes and 26 seconds. Okay, I'll be honest. I wanted to make this number one on my list because I love it so much. But y'all already know this because I did an entire episode about Black Panther earlier this season. So really, you should just go listen to that. But to recap, Black Panther is entirely fictional, yes... But it shows us what could have been. What might have happened if Africa had not been colonized? What if they had control over their own natural resources? Sure, vibranium isn't real, as far as we know. But what about uranium, rubber, gold, and diamonds? And the debates in Black Panther are amazingly close to real debates amongst Black people in history. How to overcome global oppression? Do we fight like Killmonger and Malcolm X want? Or do we work within the world as it is, like T'Challa and Dr. King proposed? The nods to the actual Black Panther Party founded in Oakland were also great. The whole movie was great. It's my number one favorite movie of the last year, but as far as historical value, I have to put it here because, well, none of it's actually historical. Ugh. Number four, Roma. For no spoilers on Roma, skip ahead to 23 minutes and 55 seconds. Roma is one of those movies that I love philosophically as a historian, but not so much as a normal human being. Let's be clear, it was beautiful and great, and all of my students who are intense film buffs assure me that it is a phenomenal movie, but it was also slow and in black and white, so the basic half of me was a little bored. But the half of me who spent years studying Mexican history in grad school was like, let's go! Roma is tricky, because unless you are well-versed in Mexican history, you are probably watching it like, wait, what, why is this dude practicing martial arts naked, and why are people shooting at each other all of a sudden, she just wants to buy a crib? So, allow me to give you some context that makes the whole movie way more interesting. First, there's a few basic premises. The social structure of Mexico, and most of Latin America, is still racialized. That's because it's a relic of Spanish colonialism when they set up a literal race-based caste system. Peninsulares, or those born on the Iberian Peninsula in Europe, were at the top. Mestizos, or mixed-race people, were in the middle, and people of color, like indigenous and African people, were at the bottom. Even though that caste system doesn't exist legally anymore, informally you still see most of the wealth and land in the hands of lighter-skinned Hispanic people and indigenous people much poorer and living in the countryside. By the late 1960s, Mexico had settled in after its revolution-slash-civil war that ended in the 1920s, The economy was growing thanks to the so-called Mexican miracle, which meant that the national economy was doing well, but at the expense of rural small landowners who were getting pushed off their land. This is a big problem because it was one of the big promises of the Mexican Revolution. They took back power from the dictator Porfirio Diaz, who had sold off a lot of Mexican land and resources to foreign, mostly American companies. So the whole promise of the revolution was to take back the land for Mexicans and to redistribute it, uh uh-oh, Cold War, to redistribute that land to Mexican peasants. So by the 1960s, when it was clear that this wasn't happening, there were a lot of peasants and especially people of indigenous descent who were very frustrated. Many indigenous people moved to the cities in search of work, and many took up jobs as household staff for the Mexican elites, like we see in the movie. The late 60s and early 70s in Mexico were really politically tumultuous. The PRI, the PRI, had ruled Mexico for 40 years using a combination of corruption, patronage, and militant repression. Side note, it wouldn't be until 2000 that Mexico elected a president from a different party, Vicente Fox. In general, the pre kept violence out of the cities. There was an unspoken agreement that the elites in the city shouldn't have to see the party's brutal tactics that were often used to suppress peasant uprisings in the countryside. But by the late 60s, that violence was making its way to the cities. The movie is historically bookended by two massacres. One is shown in the movie and one is not. The first was the 1968 Tlatelolco Massacre. That's not shown in the movie. So Mexico City was the first Latin American city and the only one to host the Olympic Games, and the pre wanted everything to go smoothly. This meant that they, quote, cleaned up the city by forcing homeless people and anyone who looked too Mexican to leave the city for the duration of the Games. Seriously. If you're interested, I did my graduate thesis on the Mexico City Olympics, and I'll post it on my website if anyone wants to really nerd out with me. Just a few weeks before the opening ceremony, thousands of college students in Mexico City held a protest calling out government corruption. The government responded, as most governments do for some reason. They sent the military and fired into the plaza, killing dozens of young people in the Tlatelolco Massacre. So Roma picks up a few years after this event. The climax of the movie is another event known as the Corpus Christi Massacre. In 1971, another group of students led a march protesting government corruption, and they were attacked by the Halcónes or Falcons. This was a group of young people who had been trained as a paramilitary force meant to make it look as if they were just a rival faction of young people, not associated with the government. So this is why Cleo's boyfriend was training out in the countryside. He was in one of those rural militias that was secretly being trained by the government to counter or fight against the protesters. Dozens of young people were killed, as shown in the movie. The best part though, of the whole movie really, was the revelation that that weird wrestling dude that shows up to train Cleo's boyfriend was a real guy. His stage name was Professor Zovec, and he was a martial artist slash escape artist who was hugely popular on Mexican TV during this time period. In the movie, we see him twice. First, he's pulling a truck with his teeth on TV early in the movie, and then he shows up to train Fermin's group. So this was a rumor about this character at the time. The real Professor Zovec died in a helicopter crash at a live gig in 1972. It's just one year after the events of the film. And many Mexicans believed that the government had him assassinated because he knew too much, thanks to his involvement training their right-wing pro-government militias. Who knows if that's true, but it's really interesting, so let's just say that it is. So the main reason historically why I really liked Roma is because it is the film version of a really cool historiographical trend— Over the last few decades, historians have slowly been expanding their research to include more voices. Traditionally, history has been the study of leaders and wars, what some call great man history. So we learn about George Washington crossing the Delaware and nothing about the other guys in the boat, let alone the women at home who sewed their uniforms. But with decolonization and the social movements of the 1960s, historians began to look into what we call subaltern history, the history of the people that are often overlooked by traditional history. That's what Alfonso Cuaron did, but with his own childhood. So he made a movie all about himself, about his childhood, where traditionally he would have been the great man, and it would have been all about him. Except he didn't. He's in the background, and the whole movie is from the perspective of someone very often overlooked, his indigenous housekeeper and nanny. It's really beautiful on a personal note, and it's really important historically, Because the more that we're able to look back at history and events from other perspectives, the more we see that you don't have to be a great man to be a part of history. And I am all for that. And speaking of people who aren't great men... Number two, The Favorite. So to skip spoilers on The Favorite, skip ahead to 30 minutes and 18 seconds. This movie was really great. For one, three strong female leads while all the men around them look ridiculous and act frivolous. Oh, I love it. And it's historically accurate. Well, mostly, except for the rabbits. Sorry. So Queen Anne was a real queen. She was actually the last monarch from the royal house of Stuart since she never had an heir, even though she did have 17 pregnancies. That was mentioned in the film. And that part is true and awful. Also, again, awful, is that the rabbits were not true. They would not have kept rabbits in the house. They were seen as like food. That would have been weird. So Anne became the queen kind of by accident, only after her older sister and brother-in-law also didn't produce any heirs, and they both passed away. Her brother-in-law and sister were William and Mary. The college in Virginia is named after them. And they were the ones who basically stole the throne from Mary and Anne's dad, James II. Okay, let's go back in time a little bit. So the house of Stuart, Anne's house, was the one that took over after Elizabeth I died with no heirs. Remember, she was the virgin queen. She didn't want to give up her power to a man, so she never married. So after Elizabeth died with no heirs, the Stuarts came down from Scotland and took over the monarchy, but they didn't always exactly agree on the whole constitutional part of the constitutional monarchy. Stuart rule is characterized by both the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, which solidified Parliament's power and greatly reduced the monarch's power in England, making it very different from the other European monarchies that still had this very intense dictator-like divine right to rule. So how did we get to Anne? Well, her dad, James II, was a Scottish Catholic king ruling over an English Protestant country. Uh Uh-oh. And he still believed in the whole absolute monarch thing. And Parliament was like, oh, that's cute, but no. So Parliament reached out to James's daughter, Mary, and her husband and asked them politely to invade and take over, please. And they did. So William and Mary were Protestants. And as a result of this so-called glorious revolution, England would forevermore be ruled by a Protestant who shared power with Parliament. This is big. So again, after all this, Anne was never meant to be queen. She was just the younger sister. And even when she became queen, it was already clear that she was not going to have any heirs and that power would transfer to a new house after she died. So her reign is sort of like a lame duck monarchy, if that makes sense. Everyone in parliament was basically just waiting around racing ducks for her to die so that a new house, what would eventually be the house of Hanover, would take over. So it is true that her reign in general was pretty frivolous and inconsequential. I mean, sure, there was a war with France going on, but wasn't there always a war with France going on? That's my take on 18th century English history. You're welcome. Now, I know you're like, shut up about politics. Get to the ladies. I hear you. Let's go. So Sarah or Lady Marlborough, which by the way, try saying Lady Marlborough with a microphone in front of your face. I'm telling you, I'm going to butcher it every time. Sarah or Lady Marlborough was a very real person. Some of her descendants include Winston Churchill and Princess Diana. So nicely done, Sarah. She was Anne's closest confidant ever since childhood, and as one historian put it, quote, while Anne ruled England, Lady Marlborough ruled the Queen. Now, there's no evidence that they were lovers, but let's not worry about that, because that's no fun. And Emma Stone's character, Abigail Hill, was also a real person, and she was Sarah's cousin. They don't mention this in the movie, but she was also related to the head of the Tory party, Robert Harley, Nicholas Holt, the cute guy in the wig who keeps trying to get her to spy for him. Anyway. Most of her life story in the movie is also accurate. Sarah's family was ruined financially by her father's gambling problem, and she did get a job in the Queen's service thanks to her cousin Sarah. And she did soon take over as the Queen's favorite. And by the way, while I was writing this, it was only at this point that I realized that's why the movie was called The Favorite. I'm an idiot. So while Sarah and her husband were Whigs, the political party that sided more with Parliament's power, and they tried to sway Anne in that direction— Abigail encouraged the queen to assert her power more. This is probably one of the reasons why Anne became the last monarch ever in English history to try to veto legislation passed by parliament. The MPs were like, "Oh, that's cute, Anne, but no. So, were they all lovers? There's no way to know, so let's say yes. But actually, probably no, sorry. So, romantic friendships between women were common in this era, especially since marriages were political and economic arrangements rather than love connections. After being supplanted by Abigail, Sarah did spread rumors that the Queen and Abigail were lovers. Apparently, she was a huge fan of an R-rated song written about the Queen and a, quote, dirty chambermaid. Apparently, when she was asked later why the Queen and Sarah had fallen out, Anne mentioned her former best friend, quote, saying shocking things to her and about her. So, at least... The story about the rumors about the stories seems to be true. But realistically, Anne was known as a prudish Protestant with a strong sense of Christian morality. It seems unlikely that she would have sexually transgressed, as they would have called it back then. And she also spent most of her life either ill, pregnant, again, 17 pregnancies, or nursing her husband, Prince George of Denmark, who they conveniently left out of the movie because who needs him? And it's worth pointing out that calling the monarch gay was a pretty common insult at the time. Every Stuart monarch had some similar story spread about them, probably as a way to try to point out their foreignness since their house originated outside of England. So, is this a movie I'm going to show my students to teach them about 18th century England? Definitely not. For one, I'd get fired, and it's also not historically significant. But I do love that it expands our understanding of women's roles in history. Women were queens. Women were advisors to the queen. Women used their power through marriage, sex, and persuasion to advance their own interests in society. And any movie that helps people understand that is good in my book. So, the winner of my arbitrary rankings of the Oscar-nominated films is number one, Black Klansmen. So, spoiler warning, if you don't want to hear about Black Klansman... Well, we're basically done, but you can also skip to 36 minutes and 10 seconds. For me, Black Klansman is the clear winner. It does everything I want in a historical movie. It's accurate. It tells a story that we didn't already know. It teaches us something about our lives today, and it's actually entertaining. As someone who has watched a lot of historical movies, I can tell you that's really hard to pull off. For one, the movie is adapted from Ron Stallworth's own book, and he's really happy with the way the movie turned out, which is the most important thing when you're making a movie about a real person. You hear that, Green Book? And Stallworth loves the choices that Spike Lee made to very explicitly connect his story with current issues today, namely the Charlottesville rally. Ron Stallworth said that he hopes that the film shows just how little things have changed, which I think it does very successfully. But first, what was not true? Well, Adam Driver's character was real, but he wasn't Jewish, and he wasn't as heavily involved in the whole operation. He's actually never been named by Stallworth, but I do think that making that character Jewish was a purposeful change, because it showed that it wasn't just black people that were threatened by bigots. It made for an interesting dynamic and conversation about the various layers of racism that exist in our country. It's not all black and white. Second, the actual operation wasn't nearly as dramatic as in the movie. Namely, no guns were ever pointed at Stallworth, and there were never any explosives or even any arrests made, even the racist cop, who was definitely real and was definitely not arrested. But I get it. Movies need explosions, I guess. It would be hard to make a movie showing how Stallworth prevented multiple cross burnings from actually happening. Like, do you just show an empty field without an 18-foot cross on fire? That would be a little anticlimactic. Finally, and this is an issue I do have, Patrice was not real. Now, let me be clear. I like that they included her as a character. So again, Patrice, as the more radical black power character, she adds to the complexity of race in our country. There are differences of opinion within the black community. And in fact, it's problematic to even just say the black community as if they're all one people. And she added an interesting element to Stalworth's role as both a black man and a cop. My only issue is why do they have to fall in love? Why do they always have to fall in love just once? Can't we have two strong, powerful characters who work together without falling in love? Anyway, this isn't really anything to do with history. It's just a pet peeve of mine. But now for the fun stuff. What was real? Well, most of it. Let me just list a few of my favorites. So Stalworth's investigation was so successful that he acquired a list of every member of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK. He was told by the organization that two of its members had top security clearance in NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, and Stallworth was later informed that those two members had been transferred, although this was never confirmed. We do know that two Colorado Springs Klansmen were Army sergeants, and both were issued leave after Stallworth's investigation. Good work, Ron. And how did Stallworth acquire a list of every KKK member in the city? Well... Because the organization actually insisted that Stalworth, a black man, become their new chapter president. This is awesome and true. It was at this point that his bosses insisted he stop the investigation because it would be almost impossible to keep the ruse up as the black head of the Colorado Springs KKK. His bosses also told him to burn and destroy all the evidence of in the investigation, but he didn't, and he used that to write his book later on. And Stalworth's conversations and friendship with head of the KKK, David Duke, were very real. Duke is still alive, and he had no issues with his depiction in Stalworth's memoir, but he didn't like Spike Lee's portrayal of him as a, quote, buffoon in the movie. I'm okay with it, for the record. Apparently, David Duke did brag to Stalworth over the phone that he could tell a person was black by the way he pronounces the word R, ar, ara just like it showed in the movie. And Stalworth says that after that, in every conversation he had, he made a point to include that word and to pronounce it Ara. Ugh, it's so badass. And Stallworth did actually provide security for David Duke when he visited Colorado Springs to attend the baptism of new members. Just like in the movie, Stalworth requested a photo, and at the last minute, he put his arm around Duke. When David Duke reacted violently, Stalworth reminded him politely that assaulting a police officer could land him in prison. Ugh, oh, so badass. Sadly, he lost the Polaroid. So my favorite change in the movie was the final conversation between Stalworth and David Duke, where Ron tells him who he really is. Now, in reality, Stalworth's story didn't go public until 2006, so no one knew about this. But it's so satisfying to watch in the movie, so I'm okay with it. So, what's the historical value of Black Klansmen? Well, it's pretty obvious because Spike Lee did not hold back. Because he's Spike Lee, and that's what he does. The movie is not subtle in its assertion that we're not past the racism we see in the movie. As the KKK chants one of its five founding principles, America first, it's impossible not to draw connections to today. And even though it's not everyone's cup of tea, it's a necessary movie. Black Klansman is essentially the opposite of Green Book. While Green Book is disnified, Black Klansman is aggressively in your face. And while Green Book attempts to show us moving beyond our racist past, after all, the cop at the end of the movie helped them fix their tire— Black Klansman asserts that we aren't nearly as far removed from that era as we should be. I get it that Green Book is way more pleasant to watch, but as far as historical value, I also understand why Spike Lee tried to storm out of the theater when Green Book won the Oscar. So, there you have it. My completely arbitrary ranking of the historical value of this year's Oscar nominees— In general, I will say that I actually enjoyed watching every one of these movies, so if you haven't seen them, you really need to watch them. And it's pretty exciting that filmmakers are finding so much of their material from history. On that note, I have a few proposals for any Hollywood executives listening to this podcast. One, a Lord of the Rings-style trilogy about the Mesopotamian city-states. Hear me out. The first movie would be called The Sumerians, The Fellowship of the Wheel. Second would be The Akkadian Empire, The Two Ziggurats. And finally, Hammurabi, Return of the King. No? Okay. What about a David Fincher legal drama where China sues Europe for stealing all of its innovations and passing them off as their own? You could call it the Silk Road Network. No? Okay. A musical about the South American revolutions in which Simon Bolivar, played by my love, Gael Garcia Bernal, obviously, sings Jean Valjean style epics about his dreams for South America. Who am I? Who are we? Gran Colombia! No? Seriously? Okay, last one. An alternative history where Central America doesn't fall into the Cold War orbit of the United States. We could call it, yes, we have no bananas. Oh, come on. That's gold. That is Hollywood gold. All right, well, you're welcome, Hollywood and moviegoers everywhere. I hope you enjoy those when they come out in a theater near you. Thanks for listening. For a full transcript of today's episode and classroom resources, go to antisocialstudies.org and follow us on Instagram at antisocialstudies. And as always, if you like what we're doing, please go wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and review. Thanks.